Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the joyfully young, gloriously hip, and luminously lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Oh, hey, everybody. Oh, hey, Zach. How's it going? (laughs) Good, good. Um, we have a lot to celebrate this week. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, so I should ask you, I, you normally ask me what's on tap, yeah. but you've taken the lead this week. So I have. I got what's on us tap, Ashley? some champagne to celebrate American Media's uh, pretty strong showing, I would mm-hmm. say, at the Catholic Press Association yep. Awards this past weekend. We won 48 awards, right, including right. like several first place finishes for things like Best Magazine, mm-hmm. Best Editorials, Best Columns, mm-hmm. and Jesuitical also got a second place award for Best Podcast. So yeah. that's really exciting, <laughs> really awesome. Um, though I do want to correct you on one thing. Is this actually champagne? It is technically Prosecco, but... <laughs> I mean, I could tell just by looking at the, bu- the way <laughs> the, bubbles. the bubbles float up. Yeah, but um, it's delicious. It is, it is. Wait, before we cheers, I also mm-hmm. want to shout out one very specific award to our co-host, Zach Davis, for getting the Multimedia Journalist of the Year. We've been trolling him since we found out, but we're honestly extremely very proud of Very happy you. for you, Zach. Thanks, guys. Congrats. <laughs> Thanks. Congrats cheers. to all of us. All right, and who are we talking to this week, Olga? So today we're talking with Dr. Shannon D. Williams. She is an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So she teaches courses in U.S., African-American, women's, religious, and civil rights history. And we're super excited to talk to her because she has been doing research on the history of black Catholic nuns in the United States. Yeah, and she's been given unprecedented uh, access to the archives of, mm-hmm. of religious communities in the United States. So she's, she's telling really important stories that just have not been told before. And she's got probably the best book title yeah. ever. Uh, it's called Subversive Habits, uh, The Untold Story of Black Catholic Nuns in the United States. Yeah. Um, but the, bu- the book is not out yet. Um, and so we were really excited to get kind of a sneak peek at some of the research she's doing and uh, some of the stories that she's told. All right. Now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, what's on everyone's mind or my mind, maybe just my mind. Aside from the CPA, what do you mean, Ashley? <laughs> the World Cup. Um, no, this has also been on my mind. I've been watching. Okay, you have been. Who do you who do you have going all the way? I've got Colombia in the off. There's an office pool bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got Argentina. I've got the Pope on my side. There's no way I'm going to lose. The reason I brought this story. Yes. <laughs> so a couple episodes, we talked about this new Vatican document called "Giving the Best of Yourself," which is a document dedicated to sports. Um, and in it, uh, the Vatican notes that. Sports can be a source of virtue and values and a way of making us better people. So there are some fun little stories about Catholics who are competing in the World Cup that we just thought we would share with you guys. Yeah. So um, I picked Colombia because uh, one of their midfielders, uh, James Rodriguez, has a tattoo of Jesus on his shin. Ooh, that's cool. Uh, And Lionel Messi has said that if they if Argentina wins the World Cup, he will go on a 30 mile religious pilgrimage to San Nicolas in Argentina. So good luck to all competing in the World Cup, but also all of us competing in uh, a World Cup office pool bracket. (laughs) Yes. What's next, Olga? So um, as of today's recording, the 19th, the Vatican released the working document for the upcoming Synod of Bishops on uh, Young People, which is happening this fall. So the document is used uh, for uh, for the bishops uh, sort of as like a a go to document they can all point to before their meeting. Um, However, I know you could probably read what was in there because it was only released in Italian this week, Olga, (laughs) and you majored in Italian. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I did. Uh, yeah, so you've read the whole thing, right? I've read the whole thing, obviously. <laughs> of course, of course. But once it comes out in English, I imagine we're going to get into it a lot more. What's next, Zach? So uh, more Vatican Pope Francis news. Um, this Saturday, he denounced abortion, um, and that's not necessarily news. Um, but he did it in such a way that he said it was the abortion was the white glove equivalent to Nazi-era eugenics programs. Um, and and by that, he meant like a sanitized metal, you know. A medical so he, he he was sort of lamenting um, that there are families today that will uh, get prenatal testing um, to find out if their child has any genetic deformities. And if if it does, then their next move is to abort abort the child. Um, and so none of this is new. Pope Francis trying denouncing this is wrong and evil. Um, but what raised a lot of red flags for people was his comparison to the Holocaust. Yeah. And. And well, he he didn't say Holocaust. He said Nazi eugenics or Nazis um, who did. They did have a eugenics program that uh, hundreds of thousands of people were forcibly sterilized um, and thousands of others were killed to try to clean the gene pool of things like Down syndrome and other um, intellectual disabilities. So that that happened and it is horrible. But the. There's, but this, but it's kind of problematic the way he yeah. way he did this, right? Yeah, because I'm, whenever you compare something to the Nazis or the Holocaust, um, it seems like you're not giving full weight to just like the unique horror that that was. So I think we like agree with the Pope, like in terms of his sentiment to like, yeah. ra- like because raise is, this issue is, up. Yeah, and it's it is the mentality of you know it is a eugenic mentality, and calling that out is. Very necessary. But you can do that without uh, comparisons to the Nazis. What's next, Ashley? All right. So this is our last story. And I think it's um, something that's definitely been on our minds. It's been all over the news recently. Uh, the the children being separated from their parents uh, at the U.S. border. Um, the Catholic leaders have denounced the Trump administration's policy um, of when a family crosses the border. Uh, the Trump administration is now prosecuting all of the adults um, and in the process of that, taking their kids and putting them in separate detention facilities uh, and holding them there. That, that that look like, and they're putting them in what are cages and they're yeah. like taking like abandoned Walmarts and factories and, right. and then turning them into uh, camps to, right, to right. hold all these kids. And they're, there's one instance where they ripped a baby away from a breastfeeding mother um, and you're seeing photographs of toddlers crying. And audio, and audio. And audio. Of... There's audio of these kids crying for their parents and for their relatives and it's just, it's so horrific. Yeah. And so the U.S. bishops were meeting uh, last week in Florida as a as a whole body um, and they issued a, uh, a denunciation of the Trump administration's immigration policies. Um but another bishop, Bishop Edward Weisenberger of Tucson, Arizona, raised uh, a separate thing of issuing canonical penalties uh, for people who are involved in separating families at the border. And what what does what does that mean? What's a canonical penalty? So a canonical penalty can range from uh, either being barred from receiving communion or just straight up uh, excommunication um, from the church. And, and has this ever been used before? It has. There have been instances of being used, um, and. In recent memory, it's largely it comes up around the the, com- the topic of abortion. Yeah, often public public officials who are publicly Catholic and publicly pro-choice, often the bishop will say that that person is barred from communion. Yeah, and it goes back not uncontroversially, but but and it goes back uh, 
further that in the United States, during the civil rights era, there was a, a bishop in the South who would uh, use canonical penalties for people who were uh, against uh, desegregation mm -hmm. um, in the communities. But the, it hasn't been used outside of abortion in quite a long time. And so it shows that the bishops are really taking this seriously. There, there, there are no plans to impose any canonical penalties, but even raising the question and debating it and you know, having canon lawyers go back and forth about it and different bishops go back and forth about it um, shows that everyone in the church is looking at this horrified, wondering what can we do? And just to be clear, we're, this is it, the barring from communion would be temporary, presumably, as long as... Yeah, Bishop And for Weiss people who, were, who are, you know actually involved in this directly separating families. Um, but it, this was just one bishop suggesting it, and it, I don't think it's moving forward. Uh, but it just shows how seriously the bishops are taking this. Right. And uh, bishops all across the country have come out very vocally against this. Uh, bishop McElroy of San Diego, uh, Cardinal Tobin. Um, and I just want to read a quote from Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York. Um, if they want to take a baby from the arms of his mother and separate the two, that's wrong. That goes against human decency. That goes against human dignity. So a lot of powerful words from these bishops. Yes. I've heard other leaders refer to this as like tantamount to torture mm -hmm. um, and because, I mean, kids who are separated from their families, studies have shown that they experience a level of psychological trauma that is lasting, that will have effects throughout their life. Right. And, and I know in times like this, it can, you can uh, feel powerless if you're watching from a distance and you feel out, genuine outrage and in and, and compassion, but you're not necessarily sure what you can do to help. Um, Olga, what what can people do to help this situation right now? Right. So first, uh, you can call your local representative, share your opinion, and urge them to act on reform. And also, you can donate to a lot of organizations who have been very, very involved in advocating for immigrants at the border. Some of these organizations, and we'll include more of these in our show notes, but some of these organizations are the Kino Border Initiative, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, that's really helpful. And like, I know for me, it's one thing I need to remind myself to do is to stay engaged. It's, mm -hmm. There have been so many horrific stories that mm -hmm. it can be tempting to just like want to turn off the news and block mm -hmm. it out. Um, but I think it's important that we that we read these stories. Um, and on top of all of these things, um, donating, calling your representative, I think it's important to ground those things in prayer. So we will definitely be praying about this. Um, yeah, and we hope you do, too. So joining us today via Skype is Dr. Shannon D. Williams. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Subversive Habits, The Untold Story of Black Catholic Nuns in the United States. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you. So we kind of want to get into why did you want to tell this story of black women religious in the United States and sort of how did you get into it? Initially, I used to tell people, oh, I just came to this project by chance. Um, I, when I entered graduate school at Rutgers in 2006, I was completely unaware of the history of Black female religious life um, in the United States and certainly in the wider Atlantic world. Um, the only Catholic sisters that I knew, Black or otherwise, were sisters that I saw on television right. um, through Hollywood representations. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s in a southern suburban parish where there were no sisters. Um, so it was really... You know, so like Sister Act or, or more than that also? So Sister Act, but also, you know, the Father Dowling mysteries. Does anyone remember those? Uh, it was no. like a priest and a sister. They would investigate these mysteries. It's a really great show. <laughs> that sounds but great. Certainly Sister Act was, um, for me, I guess, um, 
or at least Sister Mary Clarence was the only black sister that I knew. And then mm-hmm. the women in, in the film were the only sisters that I knew, although I certainly had a sense of who sisters were um, from my Catholic background. But no, um, it was chance per se. I was really interested in, in studying religious women's contributions to the black freedom struggle, particularly in the black power movement when I went to graduate school at Rutgers. And I was searching for a paper topic for a seminar in African-American history. And I was going through microfilm of the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a national black newspaper, one of the most important ones of the 20th century. And I stumbled upon a newspaper article announcing the formation of the National Black Sisters Conference at Mount Mercy College in Pittsburgh in 1968. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia. Um, Beyond sort of the title of the article, I think it was 200 Negro Sisters uh, Meet uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, They featured on the front page, a photograph of about five or six African-American nuns. And that was the first time that I had seen sort of real nuns. And I asked myself that question, like, how have these women been so invisible to me? I'm a a cradle Catholic. Um, And these are women who are embracing Black power. So I was really intrigued, to say the very least. Uh, What what is metanoia? What do you mean by metanoia? Like metanoia in the sense of spiritual awakening. Um, So even at that moment, right, I'm a cradle Catholic. I was again, born into the Catholic church, baptized as an infant. Um, but at that point in my life, I was considering leaving the church. Um, I loved being, I loved being Catholic, um, but I was very uneasy about my place in the church. I didn't know much black Catholic history outside of my own family story, um, a very select sort of uh, piece of history. My mother is actually the first black woman to graduate from the university of Notre Dame. Wow. And I grew up in a household, Dang. Uh, in a family in which everyone sort of talked about that, right? You know who your mother is. Um, everyone talked about it except my mother. Um, it is a subject that remains, for the most part, unspeakable to this day. Um, it was a difficult time. We know that the plight of the pioneers is always difficult. Mm-hmm. And so beyond that, no one else in my family was Catholic. I knew that my mother had converted as a young girl in Catholic schools in Savannah, Georgia. But beyond that, I just thought of the story of the Black Catholic or the story of Black Catholics in the United States was a story of conversion. I didn't know too much more about that. So when I came to this project, it was kind of like, oh my goodness, um, here's my place in the church. Here's a story of Black Catholic women who I was beginning to realize had a very long history in the church. Where where does that story start? Like what's what's the span of your research? It starts in the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that the first Black sisters in the United States, at least on record, were members of the Sisters of Loretto at the foot of the cross, which is a community in Kentucky, in central Kentucky, in the Catholic Holy Land there. Um, We know that they at least had um, an auxiliary community of Black sisters, although there is contemporary research that suggests that some of their earliest members may have been free women of color passing for white. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first successful community of Black women religious were the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore. They are founded in 1829. And the second successful community are the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans. And that story is really important because when we think about the history of the modern Atlantic world, Although we know that female religious life actually began in the ancient tradition in Africa, we don't see it particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition until the 19th century. Certainly with the rise of the transatlantic slave trade, you're going to have sisters who are in communities in Latin America as early as the 17th and even the 16th century. But many of them are relegated to um, sort of second class and third class status within their communities. Most of them are sort of the maids and the domestic. Many of them were slaves themselves or ex-slaves. In the case of the Holy Family Sisters, it was first founded as a community for Afro-Creole women of elite status. Um, But you're always going to have Black women who are coming from the Caribbean, from Canada, and places where they could not go into communities coming into these Black orders. And so uh, we don't think about the story of 
Black sisters is a transnational story. We think about sort of the story of the American Catholic experience, but it's important to remember that there is another transatlantic story of American Catholic sisters, one that's actually far more dominant than we have given credit for. Indeed, if we look at um, sort of the Americas, the vast majority of the practitioners of Catholicism have been people of color and particularly people of African descent and indigenous descent. And so we really need to complicate that story in our understandings of the American Catholic experience. Um, and so on the one hand, we see that their origins lie in the 19th century, but they actually go back further than that. Many of these women are descendants of the slaves of the church. Um, and that matters. And we can trace them back to the 17th century. Uh, many of these women actually have blood rights. And some of, and you're talking about Kentucky in the eight, in the 19th century. So this is happening while slavery is still legal in the Absolutely. United States. Right. So that's the other amazing story, right? That you have these communities in the case of the Oblates and the Holy Family Sisters. They're founded in cities that contain two of the nation's largest slave markets. And yeah. so what does it mean that these women who are free, who are also teaching enslaved children, um, sometimes surreptitiously, but sometimes at least um, doing catechetical work among the enslaved, um, are, are able to be founded in those communities? And what does that mean if we think about sort of these proto-feminist ideals of what it meant to embrace the celibate religious state for these women, to be in a society in which Black women's bodies, Black bodies, but Black women's bodies in particular are commodified, are displayed um, in the nude, and auctioned off. And what does it mean for these women to say that no, no one has a right to my body except my God, to be able to take the veil and what that means um, for these women. And certainly in the case of the Holy Family Sisters, um, they are very sort of conscious of that. We know that after the abolition of slavery, they begin to buy up properties that were associated with the sins of slavery. And in their first written history, they say that we have to expiate the sins of slavery. So one of their first schools was a former slave trader's pen. In the case of their mother house, which was one of the few or the only Black-owned property in the French Quarter at one time, was the former quadroom ballroom, where women of their color and caste would have been forced to sort of engage in these sexually exploitative systems, um, relationships. Um, that free women of color were forced to engage in um, as a result of sort of slavery and sort of the limitations uh, placed upon them at that particular moment in American history. So, Shannon, can you give us a sort of can you give us one story of a woman that would kind of help our listeners understand what it was like to be a black woman religious, like an example of a woman that you've met in your research that's inspirational? Um, well, there is uh, the story of uh, Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who was the foundress of the National Black Sisters Conference. She's now Dr. Patricia Gray. She left religious life in the 1970s. But I think her story is really important. Um, she was Pittsburgh's first Black religious sister of mercy. And I think what's really great about um, understanding sort of the history of racial segregation and exclusion in female religious life and the story of these women who desegregated these historically white sisterhoods, um, her story is really important because I think it is illustrative of the trials that many pioneering Black sisters had to face in their communities. We know that many white orders went to extraordinary lengths to keep Black women out of their ranks. So she was not taught by the Sisters of Mercy, the community that she entered. Instead, um, she was familiar with the Sisters of St. Joseph of Baden, Pennsylvania, um, who were staffed um, or who were at her parish, her home parish in Sewickley, Pennsylvania, which is a, a suburb of Pittsburgh. When she applied to enter that community, she was given sort of rejection. And it was difficult for her because her mother actually worked for those sisters. And so it was a really sort of difficult time for that family. Um, and then she sort of went on to nursing school um, that was operated by the Sisters of Mercy. And then a year later, um, she was admitted into that community. Um, she noted that there were other Black women who had been rejected in the years before, but a change in leadership made her admission possible in 1961. She talks about experiences with individual women in the community 
it gets pretty devastating when you hear some of the the bullying and the abuse um, that many of these pioneering sisters faced. And it was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 that really was a turning point in her life. Um, what we don't generally like to talk about is the fact that you know King's assassination was celebrated in certain segments of American society, particularly in white Catholic communities and convents and seminaries. And so for pioneering Black priests and sisters who were in those communities, King's assassination was that cataclysmic moment, yeah. right? Which might Many answer, I was, I was going to ask you, you you've written um, that since the 60s and 70s, as religious life as a whole, a lot of people left, but uh, you, you found that Black Catholics left at like twice the rate of white Catholics. Uh, does, what is that, was that the thing that kind of drove people out of the convents? You know, that was certainly something that was that statistic comes from the research of the National Black Sisters Conference, mm-hmm. particularly when they are uh, being formed. And in the case of Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, King is assassinated. Something happens in her community, but she's allowed to sort of go and be a part of the formation of the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, where the priests get together and they release this sort of historic statement in which they say that the Catholic Church is primarily a white racist institution. Patty Gray is there. She's excluded. And then she is encouraged to go and organize the Black sisters across the country. So what was really interesting is she goes back to her community. Her superior gives her permission to write to the mother superiors um, across the country. And one of the first things that she that she does is ask how many Black sisters that they have, and if they have Black sisters, can you send them? And it became very clear to her while she's writing these letters and receiving feedback that many of the pioneering Black sisters in white communities were leaving. So superiors mm-hmm. are writing and saying, you know, we would love to be able to send our Black sister, but she just left. She left yeah. the community. We don't know what's going on. But in this period between April 4th and um, King is assassinated on April 4th and the National Black Sisters Conference opens on April 16th, um, we know that she found scores of Black sisters who are leaving their communities wow. for reasons that they don't know what's going on. And so one of the first things that happens at this Pittsburgh meeting, this historic gathering, is that sisters begin to tell their stories. And in the, in the next couple of meetings, they begin to recognize that sisters are leaving for a host of reasons, um, but many of them are sort of being driven by racism. And so they begin to sort of study what is happening, what is driving sisters out of their communities. And they begin to develop programs to be able to stop that, to be able to ensure retention, um, especially if they are going to survive in the church at a moment in which Black Catholics for the first time are really beginning to seize power in ways that they had not been able to do so in their church. Shannon, you've said that Black sisters matter, but they sort of constitute this dangerous memory for the church. Uh, What is that danger for the church? I mean, one cannot tell the story of Black Catholic sisters in the United States without confronting the church's largely unreconciled history of slavery, segregation, and colonialism. And so giving you another example of a sister, um, a sister's name whose name is uh, sort of being widely uh, remembered in this contemporary moment, and that is that of Sister Mary Aloysius Beecraft or Anne Marie Beecraft, who was an early oblate sister of Providence. It is likely, according to sources that we have, that she was the paternal granddaughter of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of Maryland's largest, as wealthiest slaveholders. Um, and so what these stories tell us is that many Black sisters not only have a birthright to American democracy, but also a birthright to the American church. Uh, many of them, if they are not sort of related um, by blood to many of the nation's earliest bishops um, or sisters, they are the slaves. They are related to the slaves of many of those communities. Um, and many of these women can sort of trace their lineage back well into the colonial period in Louisiana and Maryland, 
Um, and then certainly beginning with the great migration of Catholics from Maryland into Kentucky, which is how you get those that large Black Catholic community in Kentucky there. So it's a dangerous memory because what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean where you have these sisters who whose history is not simply hidden? In many ways, it's been suppressed. Um, and for me, it's been a very difficult journey, specifically beginning to find those stories. And as I begin to tell them, people become very unsettled because we have told ourselves particular stories about the church that in many ways are not true. You mentioned Georgetown and Georgetown in recent years has been trying to grapple with its history of slave owning. Um, What kind of what kind of work, what other works of reconciliation are happening or do you think need to happen as a church we're grappling with this with this history? Well, first off, you know, there were three orders, uh, sisterhoods in Kentucky who also formally apologized for their slaveholding past um, in the early decade of the 21st century. They built monuments. In the case of the Sisters of Loretto, they built monuments not only to their slaves, but potentially to their um, earliest Black sisters. Um, you know, I think there is much work to be done. I think part of what has to happen and what's really great about what's happening at Georgetown is not simply that they're apologizing, but they also establish an institute to study slavery, to actually know what's Catholic slavery look like. Um, so many, if you talk to a lot of people, they'll say that, well, you know, Catholic slavery must have been um, a little bit better. You know, they're at least baptizing their slaves. Maybe it was less violent. Um, but the rec- the records don't suggest that. We oftentimes cite Pope Gregory's um, condemnation of the slave trade in 1839, but we also have to go back to Pope Nicholas V's um, Dumb Diverses, which was offered in 1452, which basically sanctioned slavery. It basically sanctioned perpetual enslavement. It basically gave uh, the Portuguese permission to go enslave pagans um, in various parts of the Atlantic world. So that's one place where we have to start. I think it's just a matter of acknowledging sort of the role of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church was never an innocent bystander in the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and in Catholic slaveholding itself. Religious orders of men and women in the Americas were sometimes the largest uh, slaveholders in their respective communities. Um, And even beyond that, beyond slavery, there is this history of racial segregation and exclusion that we have to really confront in female religious life and religious life in general one way to begin is to actually sort of follow the lead of some sisters who have begun to apologize um, to women who were rejected admission into their communities. In the case of Dr. Patricia Gray, formerly Sister and Martin DePorris. I mean, because these people are still alive, right? And- right. So in the case of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Baden, um, when they learned, when a member of their community learned that they had rejected uh, Dr. Gray's uh, application in 1961, she immediately went to her superior They went into their archive and they contacted her and went through a formal reconciliation process. Other communities are beginning to go in their archives to see if they can find the conversations around admitting sort of Negro girls, right? What that conversation looked like in their congregational records. Um, Were there letters that were rejected? How were were they rejected? What what was the extent? Sort of what's been really interesting to me, again, is sort of the extraordinary lens that some communities went to keep Black women out of their ranks. the preference for lighter skinned women, those black women who were born outside of the United States, as opposed to those who are in the United States, there are all these nuances depending on the community. So for me, I think the first necessary step is to actually investigate each congregations or orders um, own complicity and role in perpetuating and maintaining slavery and or segregation in, um, in religious life and beyond. You mentioned you mentioned um, that when you started this research, you were you were kind of on the fence about staying Catholic, but uh, you you stayed in the church. Uh, 
what role did research this research have in your faith life? Everything. Um, had I not encountered this history, I would be gone. Not because I don't love being a Catholic, but because I felt not welcomed. Um, I have my own sort of stories and experiences of exclusion in the church. Um, but I think more importantly, I just didn't know my place in the church. I didn't know the history. Um, and the history that I did know was a history in which my mother did not freely share. So listening to these women's stories, and they are powerful testimonies of faith, um, what these women endured, what they survived um, was for me, it was what became necessary for me to stay in the church. Because if these women could stay and maintain their faith um, in the face of oftentimes gut-wrenching discrimination, I knew that I could stay. But I also knew that I wasn't a stranger in the church. Like I said, I used to t tell people that, oh, well, you know, I came to this story by chance. Actually, it was more so providential serendipity. Um, I, without these women, without their testimonies, so many of them, these women were preaching to me and they didn't realize that I was on my way out of the church. They were sort of keeping me in the church, sort of telling their stories. <laughs> so I, I was, I'm, I'm extremely right. thankful for it. But just to answer your question again, without these women, without knowing this history, I would be gone. So Shannon, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I think our listeners are going to benefit from just the research and from your forthcoming book. Um, I just can't wait for your stuff to just be like <laughs> everywhere and taught like, yeah. to every yeah. Catholic. I mean, like this is all just so like, you don't grow up hearing any of this. And you it's, don't, yeah. you, you really, really don't. So one final question for you though, if you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, um... who would it be and why? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, the Archdiocese of Chicago has sort of launched or opened the cause for Augustus Colton. Um, so I would actually launch the cause mm -hmm. for his mother, Mary Jane. She is the, you know, she was a cradle Catholic from Kentucky. She was sold away from her family into Missouri, married Augustus, Augustus's father in a Catholic church. Um, her story is amazing. But what's most important, after her husband is killed in the Civil War, um, after, you know, Justice Cheney, the nation's first Catholic Supreme Court justice basically sort of issues that, you know, infamous declaration and the Dred Scott decision that, you know, black people would never be citizens and, 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 and so on. Three years later, she marches her children, her three young children, um, from slavery in Missouri to freedom in Illinois. And then she makes sure that they all have a Catholic education. Indeed, when Augustus Holton becomes the first, uh, the nation's first self-identified Black priest, his mother and his sister go with him to Chicago. And that ministry um, and the foundations that they were able to lay in Chicago, which is an important Black Catholic community today, um, were laid not just by Augustus, but his mother and his sister as well. And so for me, it is the story of Mary Jane Holton. Um, who marched her children to freedom, um, who ensured that they would have a Catholic education, um, who gave rise to the nation's first Black Catholic priest, um, is a story. In many ways, she she is representative of all these nameless um, and faceless Black Catholic lay women who laid the foundation of the church upon whose shoulders so much of the Black Catholic community, not only in the United States, but also in the modern, uh, sort of in the Atlantic world, it rests. And so it would be her. Okay, so St. Mary Jane Tolton. Pray for us. Shannon, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. We don't actually have that much feedback this week, but we want to 
talk about our Facebook page, which continues to be a wonderful uh, place for discussion. And we've decided that um, every Friday we're going to put a shout out for your consolations and desolations. Yeah. So every Friday from now on, we're going to be asking for your consolations and desolations. And so we can kind of all share with each other. You know, Ashley, Olga and I, we're sharing our consolations and desolations on the podcast Friday. So if you're listening to this, if you listen on Fridays, it maybe jump over to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical and share yours. And also a reminder that we've got our Patreon page. And if you want to hear more of us and join us. And why wouldn't you? Right, right. If if you want to join us for our monthly Google Hangout talks and so much more and you get Jesuitical swag, you can sign up at patreon.com slash America Media. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of the show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? Um, So I've got a desolation this week um, to just be perfectly honest. I've been feeling extremely exhausted. Um, Last week I talked about sort of the, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, racial attack that my friend faced. um, And I'm still processing that. And then like going through the news that we've been seeing at the border and seeing the way that so many people, Catholics, non-Catholics in this country treat sort of black and brown migrants who are coming into this world, um, into this country, excuse me. Um, It's just been really exhausting to kind of I'm struggling with not going to that place of hate. It's just been really exhausting to remind myself, okay, as a Catholic, you can't just hate people because they say awful things, even though that is where I am right now. And it just seems like it's so much easier to hate people who just say really xenophobic, sexist, whatever, all of these awful things. It's it's hard for me to pull myself from that place of hate. Um, And it's sort of like taking me into this sort of personal hell. And I know that God isn't there, but I just... You know, I'm having a hard time kind of like pulling myself from that moment. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. been it's been yeah. really desolating. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah, like that knowledge from where what we know and what we actually feel and what we need to do is really tough to get right, to right. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ashley, what do you got? I also have a desolation. Um, I so I have a a friendship that um, I've I've been estranged from this friend for for a few like six months now. Um, and I saw something on social media that just made me think of her. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like one of us has to be the one to reach out and try to like reconcile. But my pride and I, my pride is keeping me from doing that. I want I want her to be the one to reach out to me. Right. Um, and I know I know that that's that, you know, God like is the ultimate reconciler and so certainly if there's not reconcile reconciliation happening god is not there um and i and i can see speaking of like having knowledge and not acting on it i know that my pride is what's in the way of that reconciliation um but have still not been able to swallow it um so yeah the desolation is you know like seeing my own sin and still not still not being the one to like reach out um and you know repair a friendship that i value um so that's that's my desolation right it, it's hard to be in that position with someone who you have history with and mm-hmm. you have like positive moments with but it is it is hard to like be the one to make that effort yeah what do you have zach uh i've got a consolation this week uh so Ashley and I were over at the Jesuit community. We were having dinner with uh, Father Sundrup, and there was a group of uh, people who were candidates, is what they're called, but people who are thinking about joining the Jesuits. And we, I just kind of like met a few of them um, who said they listened to the show uh, and were just like, 
it said it affected them and their faith life. And they were like, you're living the mission. Uh, and I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, so much of this job, a lot of the times is, uh, and I'd like to think of it as, it's not just a job, it's a ministry. Mm-hmm. But it's like putting, making the, this content and putting it out. And you're like, dang it, only... 800 people read this thing that I cared about. Whereas before in like other ministry settings, you'd be like, wow, I had like one conversation today that like really made me see God there. Right. Whereas oftentimes the only feedback you hear are from commenters who are angry and telling Mm -hmm. you you did things wrong. And so to be able to be pulled out of sort of the day-to-day grind to see the effect of our ministry uh, and where God is working in, in someone else's life through because of that, um, I, I, I mean, I was pulled out of that and I saw God and that is a huge consolation uh, as we do this work. So That's I, awesome. Yeah. Alrighty. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by John Thomas and they were um, inspired by the mysteries of the rosary. He noted I appreciated. Left out the sorrowful. Yeah. Thankfully. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Conta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Sean McElwee. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.